Hello and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard and I'm the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter, but healthcare is also personal. About five years ago, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer and I am still in remission today thanks to the healthcare I received. So we're here to answer your healthcare and health insurance questions. So please call or text in your questions and we'll answer them in a future episode. Our first question for today is from... Kay. Uh, Kay is from Michigan and wants to know two things. Does Medicare pay for the new shingle shot? Uh, I know it's two shots. And also, do they pay for chiropractors? Uh, to answer that question, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thanks, Laura. So I have some good news on this front. Um, as a general proposition, everybody should be aware that Medicare covers almost all reasonable and necessary services with the exception, sadly, still of vision, dental, and hearing and long. So that means, good news, that it does cover the shingles vaccine uh, and it does cover chiropractic services. Um, on the shingles vaccine front, it, uh, it is covered under Part D, which is the Medicare prescription drug benefit. And that benefit um, is different depending upon the insurance company that offers you that coverage. So if you're in traditional Medicare, you've chosen a plan and that plan um, may provide you the shingles vaccine um, with zero out-of-pocket costs, or it may um, ask for you to pay some amount out-of-pocket. And that's the same with a Medicare Advantage. The bigger good news, though, is that the Inflation Reduction Act ends cost sharing for all vaccines for people. So down the road, you will get the shingles uh, vaccine under Medicare Part D free of charge altogether. With chiropractic services, um, those are covered under Medicare Part B, which are outpatient services. Uh, Medicare Part B is part of both traditional Medicare and Medicare Advantage. And with um, chiropractic services, that means that you're going to be paying, um, if you haven't yet paid a deductible, the deductible, and then coinsurance of maybe 20% uh, unless you have supplemental coverage to pick up the uh, out-of-pocket costs in Medicare, if you're in traditional Medicare. Um, but you need to see a doctor who takes assignment, meaning that doctor accepts Medicare's rate as payment in full. If you see a doctor that takes Medicare patients but doesn't take assignment, you may pay an additional 15% above Medicare's approved rate. With your Medicare Advantage plan, um, there's out-of-pocket cost sharing, and that can vary. I just want to add one other note, which is that, yes, Medicare covers chiropractic services, but um, it, it does so um, for manual manipulation of the spine when your spinal joints are not moving properly. It doesn't cover chiropractors' x-rays or massage therapy or acupuncture, unless the acupuncture is for the treatment of chronic low back pain. Great. Our next question is, uh, if you don't have health insurance through your employer and you aren't yet eligible for Medicare, uh, what should you do now? How can you find out what you might qualify for through the Affordable Care Act? To answer that question, welcome Alika from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Um, so the great news is that if you don't have insurance through your employer and you're not yet eligible for Medicare, there are 
lots of options available to you. Um, what you qualify for is really going to depend on your income. So the first option um, is if you make less than around $1,500 a month as a single person or about uh, uh, $3,000 a month as a family of four, um, you may be eligible for free or low-cost insurance through Medicaid. Um, it's really important to just emphasize that your eligibility for Medicaid depends on your current monthly income. So even if your income might have been a little higher earlier in the year, if this month and uh, you are making less than $1,500 a month as a single person, $3,000 as a family of four, um, you are likely eligible uh, for Medicaid. Um, it's always worth submitting an application to be sure. Um, you can, and it, again, it, sometimes those limits can depend on the state as well. Um, the limits are a little bit different um, if you, for example, are pregnant or um, if uh, you are uh, looking for coverage for children. Um, so you can submit an application um, either through healthcare.gov, um, certainly through a certified partner like HealthSherpa, or you can go to your state Medicaid agency and submit an application directly through them uh, as well. So that's option one. Um, if your income's a little higher than those limits or you live in a state that um, hasn't expanded their um, Medicaid program to everyone regardless of, uh, uh, to everyone below certain incomes, um, you may be eligible for coverage through the Affordable Care Act um, marketplace. And those are private plans that have to meet certain guidelines, for example, um, covering essential health benefits, uh, offering pre-existing condition protections, uh, free preventive care, all of that good stuff um, that came along with the Affordable Care Act. Um, now, with those plans, depending on your income, uh, you likely will qualify for some kind of financial assistance. Uh, to give you a sense, uh, last year at HealthTripa, we enrolled more than 3 million people in coverage, and most of them paid less than $25 a month for their plan. So those plans can be really affordable. Um, again, if you go to healthcare.gov, um, again, a certified partner like HealthSherpa, you can find a local uh, trusted broker or a sister who can help you figure out what you qualify for. And they can also help you figure out if you qualify to enroll right now. Uh, right now we are in what's called the special enrollment period, which means you do need a qualifying life event to enroll. Uh, the most common ones are losing coverage in the last um, 60 days or um, life changes like getting married, having a baby, uh, those kinds of things, but the list is long. So if you speak with a trusted professional, they can help you figure out uh, whether you, if you don't, open enrollment starts November 1st and that new plan would kick in January 1st. So uh, if you don't have a qualifying life event, that's really what you got to keep an eye out for and you can enroll at that. Thank you, Alika. Our next question is from Tina who says, if my insurance denies multiple medications prescribed by my doctor, what are my options? My doctor says use the manufacturer's discount coupon, but it only covers a few months. And then what? Uh, Diane, do you have any thoughts for Tina? Yes. Um, maybe thought number one is what's going on with your insurance, that it's denying so many med med medicines, and you might want to look into other insurance next time. But thought number two for the immediate is um, to talk to your doctor about alternative drugs that could um, replace the drugs that he or she is suggesting or prescribing for you. Um, it may be that your insurer doesn't cover one drug, but does cover another. Um, however, if you actually need the particular drug your doctor has prescribed, you have a right to appeal the denial from your insurance company. The best way to do that is with the help of your doctor. If your doctor sends a letter or writes a letter, or you could draft it for your doctor explaining why 
the drug is medically necessary for you and no other drug will work, uh, then you can send that to back to your insurance company with the denial letter saying, um, I am appealing, this drug is medically necessary for me. And in usually um, the vast majority of instances, the insurance company will end up paying. I am so sorry that you have to go through that headache if that's what you need to do. Um, but at least um, it is one way that you may get your medications covered. Uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation has written also about people just literally going online and buying their drugs um, from a low-cost uh, provider, either in the U.S. or a verified pharmacy abroad. Um, often the cost of drugs, if you are importing them from abroad for personal use, is just pennies on the dollar of what you pay here. Um, so you might want to look at that. Pharmacychecker.com has a list of um, pharmacies that are verified from around the country. And while it is true that the FDA um, still declares it, you know, quote unquote, illegal for people to import drugs from abroad, uh, they've never prosecuted anyone from importing drugs from abroad for personal use. And according to Kaiser, 9 million people uh, import their drugs from abroad in the U.S. Absolutely. And also you can look at uh, new options like uh, Mark Cuban's Cost Plus uh, Pharmacy. And uh, I think there's some nonprofit pharmacies uh, or that pharmacies that cater to uh, low income folks as well. So if you go to our website, act.tv slash care talk, we have links to those options out there. Our next question is from Joy, who says, I've heard Advantage Healthcare is not Medicare. I'm 66 and pay $179 a month for my healthcare. Uh, Diane, can you explain the difference between Medicare and Medicare Advantage uh, and, and maybe help uh, Joy figure out what is the best option? Absolutely. So um, I'm just going to keep it really, really simple. What you're paying for right now is the Medicare Part B premium, which covers uh, medical services, whether you're in the government-run traditional Medicare program or Medicare Advantage. So either way, uh, Medicare is going to cover, um, it is supposed to cover all medically reasonable um, and necessary services. If you're in traditional Medicare, the government pays doctors directly on a fee-for-service basis. You go to the doctors you want to see anywhere in the country. Almost all doctors take Medicare. More than 90% of doctors take Medicare. Um, and your um, care will be covered in almost all instances. Um, and you will pay a coinsurance and a deductible unless you have supplemental coverage to pick up those costs. With Medicare Advantage, People believe that they um, have lower costs um, and they might, but it's a big gamble and sometimes they have much higher costs. So, of course, health insurance is not about today. It's about tomorrow and future unexpected needs. And all of us could be diagnosed with a complex condition tomorrow. So we want to protect ourselves with traditional Medicare. Again, if you need to go to Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or some other specialty hospital anywhere in the country, if you need to move in with a family member and get care where that family member lives, it's all covered. With Medicare Advantage, as a general proposition, your coverage is limited to the area in which you live and restricted to a narrow network of doctors, much smaller, a small subset of the doctors that are covered under traditional. In addition, uh, you will need, in many instances, permission from the Medicare Advantage plan to get the care that your doctor says you need. So if your primary care doctor says you need to go to Sloan Kettering or you need to go 
uh, to this specialist, first of all, um, that specialist or Sloan Kettering needs to be in the Medicare Advantage network, which often it's not. And then if it is, you still need um, approval in many instances from the Medicare Advantage plan to get that care so that it is covered. And uh, what we have been seeing of late are a lot of reports that there is widespread and persistent uh, inappropriate delays and denials of care and coverage of Medicare Advantage. So um, people who need a lot of costly care are struggling to get it. Now, obviously, there are some Medicare Advantage plans that are better than others where you can get your care. The problem is we don't know which are the bad actors and which are the good. So um, you may want to go to traditional Medicare if you want easy access to care. Uh, there will be higher upfront costs because you'll need supplemental coverage to pick up out-of-pocket costs. Um, but you will, you'll be more likely to get the care you need when you need it without having to go through hoops. In Medicare Advantage, you don't need supplemental coverage, but you'll have co-pays and deductibles, and you will almost definitely need to go through hoops to get the care you need. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Uh, and please keep calling or texting in your questions, and we will keep answering them in future episodes. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest for today, Dr. Eric Sullivan of Doctors for America, who's going to be talking about what to do if you or a loved one gets a scary diagnosis, uh, working within the medical system, getting a second opinion, uh, getting expert care from outside your local provider. Uh, what should you do? So welcome, Dr. Eric Sullivan. Thanks, Laura. Really happy to be here and, and talk to you and your audience about this topic. Um, so just to start with, you know, receiving a scary diagnosis, I think, is something that many of us have experienced personally or through loved ones. And if, if we haven't, it's something that is always in the back of our mind whenever we're going to a provider. Um, and I think the, the first thing to keep in mind if and when this happens to you or, or a loved one is to know that whenever you're getting that scary diagnosis, whether it's, it's cancer or a serious infection or anything else um, very worrisome is to know that getting that diagnosis is, is just the start. It's just the beginning of a process. And so whether you're in the hospital or whether you're in a doctor's office um, receiving that news, uh, just know that, you know, you don't need to have all the answers. Um, you don't need to necessarily have a plan in place, um, you know, that same day to have all the boxes checked um, because there's going to be more opportunities um, to work with your care team moving forward. Now, that said, that, that's not to say that you shouldn't be asking questions um, and asking as many questions as you want. Um, the, the provider, the doctor should hopefully, first and foremost, be explaining things to you in layman's terms. Um, if they're giving you a lot of terms, throwing things at you that you don't understand, um, even if you're, you're kind of like, oh, well, I think I know what that means. If, if you're uncertain, you know, this isn't the time to kind of be, be polite and, and kind of let that gloss over and, and, and kind of worry about it later absolutely interrupt the physician, the nurse, whoever you're speaking with, um, to say, hey, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. Can, can you put that in another way? Or, or can you explain that to me um, in more like common language? That is 100% what the doctor should be doing to begin with. Um, but if they're not, then please get them back on the right track, because you or your loved one understanding what's going on is, is going to be the first step in taking, you know, the, the many steps down the path to understanding and treating whatever is happening. Um, and so some of those questions that you may think about asking if, if you know, if they're not already top of mind, um, really basic one, how did you come to this diagnosis? Um, you know, sometimes people know ahead of time kind of, you know, oh, I, I had this test, I had a 
the CT scan or this MRI, like I knew they were looking for cancer, for example. And so they maybe have steeled themselves. They've done some research um, to know that this is exactly what what was coming or, or was a possibility. But other times, you, you know, especially if, if you're in the hospital or, or if your doctor is doing kind of more general tests or you have vague symptoms that don't necessarily lend themselves to like a test that's going to say yay or nay, like this is exactly what you have. Um, you know, the physician may be speaking to you about, well, I think you may have X. Um, and, and that doesn't always necessarily mean that yes, 100% certainty you do have X. So a great question to ask the doctor is how did you, how did you decide that this is what you think I have? And, you know, how certain is it that I have this? And that they, you, you can even ask them to put it into like quartiles. Like, is it 99 to 100% certain that I have this? Is it like 75% certain, 50%? Um, you know, they may not be able to give you like, you know, a really finite number, like 62%, something like that. But oftentimes physicians can at least give you a sense of, yes, you know, we see a giant mass like on this imaging report. There's pretty much no other explanation for this than, you know, a, a malignant cancer versus a blood test, they, they may say to you, well, this blood test is, is abnormally high, but there may be other reasons for that, and we need to do some additional tests. And those are just two very different scenarios that a physician may have the same kind of tone of voice either way, you know, kind of trying to keep it even keeled, but the level of certainty that, that they have with that diagnosis may be completely different. So that's a good thing to establish early on if the physician isn't articulating those sorts of things, you know, whether this is something that is absolutely 100% the thing that we're going to be worried about for the next six to 12 months, or is this something by the next appointment, we may have some additional information and, and this was actually a false alarm. And so those are, I would say, where to start with. Um, and then of course, asking, you know, if, if you're in a place where you feel like you can, what are those next steps for me? Like, what, are, what do I need to do right now as the patient going forward? Do I need to make another appointment with you? Um, if you're seeing your primary care doctor, asking them, do I need to see a specialist? Do you think I should be seeing someone else about this? Um, and how soon should that be taking place? Because again, the timeline of things could be very different depending on what sort of disease you're looking at. Um, and I'll, I'll pause there in case there's any, any questions about that part. Uh, otherwise, I can, I can keep going. Uh, well, I just wanted to echo what you said that uh, doctors don't it isn't always certain what a diagnosis is. Uh, for example, uh, after my first scan, there were cancerous, um, they, they saw something in my lungs, several somethings, and they proceeded on the assumption that I had lung cancer. And then as I had more tests, it turned out to be lymphoma, a different type of cancer with a very different treatment and prognosis. Uh, and, and I asked my doctor at the time, how certain are you that this is lung cancer? And he said, very certain. I said, is there anything else it could be? And he said, well, it, it could be lymphoma or these other things, but we think it's lung cancer. But again, uh, more tests uh, can uh, deliver certainty. Doctors can get it wrong. You absolutely can and should get second opinions, especially if this is a, a serious diagnosis, uh, because uh, the, the doctor that you start off with, maybe your primary care doctor, uh, this may not be their particular area of expertise. Uh, so I just wanted to echo everything that uh, Dr. Sullivan had to say. And uh, Diane had some questions. You're muted. Uh, I just wanted to chime in that 
going to the doctor and getting a scary diagnosis or any diagnosis can just be beyond overwhelming, even for the most composed human being. It's always scary. And so bringing a loved one or somebody you trust to the doctor's office with you, basically whenever you go, just to be another set of ears, to take notes, to help you ask questions can really be invaluable. And also um, doctors are usually pinched for time. And so even when you ask them, you know, why or what percentage of time or whatever, um, they might rattle off a string of answers that are just beyond your ability to digest. And so um, I know my son has taught me to take uh, my phone and use the voice memo function on the phone and tape the conversation so that then you can replay it and listen to it slowly. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) Um, I was just gonna say, yes, uh, 100% 100% bringing family members is a great um, a great opportunity whenever you're going to see the doctor. And, and that's whether you're coming just for your regular checkup, everything's fine, versus, you know, you're, you're anticipating that this might be a more intense uh, conversation with your doctor than usual. Um, some of my, you know, best conversations uh, have often been when there's been multiple family members in the room with me with a patient, because then just like you're saying, there's more people to kind of digest and process the information. And, and your loved ones may think of questions in the moment that you didn't necessarily think of. Um, and I will say I uh, have zero problem with people recording me um, when I'm speaking with them, because just like you're saying, like the logistics these days of, of actually coordinating, getting the adult child or the spouse to actually be there, like to them also take a day off of work to come in can be challenging. So absolutely, that that's a very reasonable uh, request in, in my mind. I would only say that there are probably some physicians out there and, and maybe particularly like older physicians who may be a little taken aback that someone's like recording them in, in real time. Um, so just like, you know, at least giving an FYI, like, Hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so like, is it okay if I record this? And I mean, I don't know enough to know whether they could legally like, no, you cannot record me. But, um, I would imagine that almost all of them, especially if it's a significant conversation, would be like, oh, yeah, of course, that's fine. Um, but just so, so that people are aware <laughs> and not being caught off guard. Um, and the other thing is like having people on speakerphone is an extremely common thing that I've seen. Um, and so that's another area where I am always like very encouraging if that's something a patient wants to do. And uh, just to echo what Diane said, when I got my diagnosis, I think my brain kind of shut down. So it is very good to have somebody with you or recording or something, because if you get told bad news, you may not be able to process anymore at that time. So they may be telling you important things and you just can't listen anymore. So mm-hmm. be aware of that. And Elika had a question. I do. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about the sort of process for finding a second opinion or, or you know, um, particularly if you're dealing perhaps with um, a provider in the first line, who's just sort of local to you? Um, how do you decide sort of who might be the best person to see about a second opinion? And I'm sure that timelines and things like that factor into. Yeah, and and I was trying to look up to see if there's any fantastic resources on like the the ideal way to go about this. Um, nothing that I could find that that outlines it specifically. So I'll, I can give you the way I would recommend a patient if, if they came to me. Um, and and I will say just as a as a preface to this that even though um, you know, getting a second opinion is something that I think everyone knows is very common, very reasonable. Um, doctors are human and and everyone has their pride. So, um, you know, doctors may be like a little taken aback at first. And, and that's not to say that they should be, but it may happen. Um, but it, at the same time, medical diagnoses should never be personal in terms of personal to the physician. Like this isn't, you know, they're, they're not... Um, 
you know, lining up wins or things like that, you know, this is about getting the best care to the patient, whoever is providing that care. Um, and so I think particularly younger physicians, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm, as a younger physician, I guess I'm a little biased. I would say that you know, they're a little more comfortable, like people have often worked in like big team-based settings um, where you're working in that sort of uh, environment of, of getting more and more people to chime in about what the course of action is. Um, so, but just being cognizant that, especially if, if your physician is, is someone who, you know, maybe is a solo practitioner, like kind of works on their own, um, things like that. They maybe one of those things where you, it may be a little uncomfortable at first, but you should absolutely keep at it and, and pursue that in terms of getting a second opinion, because that's almost always the right thing to do. If there's any doubt in your mind about what your next steps are, or even if there's not a doubt and you just want to accumulate a little bit more information. So just a preface there that everyone should be should be comfortable doing that and physicians should be comfortable referring their patients out to get second opinions. Um, and then so to, to get to your to your question, um, I would say, you know, from my perspective as a primary care physician, um, I would hope that my my patient would feel comfortable coming to me to say like, hey, you know, I just saw a specialist so-and-so like my cardiologist or whatever. They told me that I have heart disease or I have heart failure or something like that. Um, you know, and I just would like to know, you know, if this is, if what they're recommending is exactly right. And is there anyone that you recommend? So that would be the first step. So if you have a relationship with your primary care doctor, I think that's the best place to start in terms of going about who, who is, who would they send their family to? And that's a great way to phrase it as like, Hey, I just found out that I have this, or my mother has this, um, you know, they saw their doctor in so-and-so. And I just want to know, you know, if you were sending a loved one, or if you yourself had to go get care in this area, you know, who would you go to? And by and large, like even physicians new, um, you know, soon out of training will often have, you know, a, an expanding Rolodex of names of people that they trust, you know, that they've worked with or that they know other people have worked with that are acclaimed in the field and area or even in other areas um, that they can get in touch with to say, hey, I have this person here who has some more questions. Um, and, and I was even, as a medical student, I had a family member who developed a pretty serious medical condition while I was in medical school. And obviously I didn't know anyone at that time. I was not a doctor yet, um, but I was, I was surrounded by doctors in medical school. So I went to the dean of my medical school. I was like, hey, this is happening. My family lives in this area. Is there someone that you know or that you would recommend? And he, like very shortly thereafter, come up with three names um, to give to me. So plugging into that physician network is going to be a really great option to start with. And, and like I said, if you have a relationship with your primary care doctor in the area that you're trying to get care, that's going to be, I think, the first place to start. Um, now, if your primary care doctor is is like, hey, this is really specialized, or like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't, I don't know this, um, you should be able to say, well, I, I may not know this person personally, but I, I'm me personally. Like, if if I'm in the recognition, I'd say like, hey, this is like one of the biggest academic hospitals in the area. Um, your academic hospitals, you know, whatever is close to you, and, and you don't necessarily have to live in a city that has academic hospitals to access them. Like, for example, I'm in Illinois. We have many um, academic hospitals here in Chicago. But if you're in like downstate Illinois, maybe you're farther from that, you know, your doctor should definitely still be comfortable picking up the phone and being like, hey, Northwestern University of Chicago, you know, this is something I, I'm not really super familiar with. Is there someone up there that, that I should be sending my patient to? Because um, again, you know, physicians should be accustomed to having that sort of collegiality to reaching out to people um, and taking advantage of academic medical centers that, you know, are otherwise known as tertiary care centers, where part of their job is to see the rarest of the rare conditions and, and to have that expertise. Um, they should have people who can, at the very least, point you in the right direction and say like, yeah, actually, this isn't something that we're the best at. 
but hey, this hospital over here, like they are actually really phenomenal in this area. So going to those resources, going to the places where um, there's a, such a collection of knowledge that you can kind of feed off of that and then turn that into your second opinion is another good option. And also, uh, one of the things that I did, uh, I immediately hit the Google and some information you find online will be more reputable than others, but I found some support groups of patients. And then I looked at who they recommended, who they thought were the experts in, uh, for what I was looking for and people that were in my region, not necessarily in my city because, uh, Las Vegas doesn't happen to it's, it's kind of a medical desert. Uh, so, uh, you can go through, uh, support groups of, of people with your medical condition too. And you will find, uh, patients will advocate for this. This doctor was great. Uh, this, this doctor was really helpful. And, with some advanced conditions, people will fly all over the country to get access to the very best care. So at least for a second opinion initially, it may be worth talking to one of the best doctors in the country if you can find them, if you can at least get them on the phone or via email. Yes, definitely. And and the thing to know is that even if though even if you're talking to a provider in another state or want to have a visit with them, for example, like a telehealth visit now in, in the age where we have telehealth visits easily accessible for many, um, you know, as, as was previously noted, there's in-network, out-of-network things for people that, that can pr- produce barriers. Um, but, you know, for that initial visit, for that conversation, for just a regular office visit, um, even if you're going out of network, number one, talk to your insurance company. They may be able, there may be things that they can do, like God, God willing, to, to help you with that. Um, but even, even if not, that initial conversation with an expert you know, relatively speaking, shouldn't break the bank. You know, you you should be taking in the orders of, you know, tens, hundred, two hundred dollars, hopefully to just have a telehealth visit. Um, And if that's enough to just like get you a lot more information that you need, that's hopefully like money well spent. And again, and if you're someone who's completely uninsured, then talking with the facility about charity care, um, different options, financial um, plans that, that can be utilized in those situations. So just know that though that initial conversation hopefully shouldn't be the the thing that's going to be this gigantic cost when it's coming at that beginning, the beginning of the process, when you're really just hungry for a lot of information and, and figuring out what those next. And uh, do you have any last thoughts for our audience uh, for if, if they get this, this bad news? Um, I think my last thoughts would just be uh, circling back to what I said at the beginning uh, and, and what many of you have alluded to. I, I think the hardest thing for people to, uh, do in this situation is is to feel like they got all their questions answered by the time that they left, and just just being okay with that, and 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 not to the, to the extent that like if, if the doctor was ignoring questions, like that's a huge red flag. Please don't see that doctor anymore. Um, but to the extent that you're just feeling like oh my god, there's like so much still left to do. I I know there's like still a lot on um, on the the to do list that I like want to fill out, and just just again reminding yourself turning to that loved one to be like, Hey, let's go and see this doctor again in a week. Like let's schedule a telehealth visit to continue this conversation. Like your physician should be comfortable saying, Hey, I can see that, you know, you still have more questions. We're out of time for today, but you know, I'm available again next week or I'm available, you know, this, to this day, you know, by phone, um, let's schedule a telehealth visit. Um, just knowing that you can keep that conversation going when this first gets, you know, when you first get this diagnosis, you don't have to have, everything figured out that same day. Um, and your physician should be actively reminding you of that and, and just reminding you that 
you know, this is a process, um, not like a singular event that that you have to have everything figured out that same day. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, this is Care Talk. Please keep calling and texting in your questions and we'll answer them in future episodes. And thanks for spending time with us today. <laughs> <laughs>